Hello, this is Sydney, and before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that, first of all, this podcast is a little different. It is actually my submission for a final project in a class that I took this semester called Mass Movements and Mass Incarceration. Hi, Heath. In this class, we explored the history and condition of modern discrimination and injustice from the perspective of mainly race and social class. The most important series of lessons for me this semester was learning the pedagogy and practice of disruption as a means of dialogue between the people and the powers that be. After a summer filled with controversy, disruption, and civil unrest, it was speaking with individuals who understand this work and live in this work that was the most unsettling and invigorating experience. Spending this year learning more about the individuals who are living and working against these systems has inspired me as a learner and as a budding professional. All throughout the semester, we have heard from firsthand some of the literal trailblazers of modern day disruption, like Derricka Purnell, Lawrence Ralph, and Niall Fort. So for my final project, I would like to spend some time picking the brain of another very well-known Detroit attorney, institution builder, and radical icon, Amanda Alexander, about her outlook on some hot topics of the right now. I hope this conversation will be eye-opening, transformative, and fun to listen to. Enjoy. This is your host, Sydney Gardner-Brown, and you're listening to The Sit Down, a series of unfiltered, organic, recorded conversations featuring the voices of interesting humans with something to say. Our conversations are usually focused on capturing a wide array of perspectives regarding race, pop culture, politics, gender, sexuality, well-being, and more. Today is a special feature episode. It's a little different from usual. It's not featuring the voice of a college student. Well, she was a college student. She isn't anymore. Well, just stay tuned and you'll find out soon. Enjoy. On this episode of The Sit Down, I will be interviewing Amanda Alexander. I'm excited (laughs) for our conversation. Me too. Oh, I'm not just excited for this conversation. I am absolutely honored, okay? Because Amanda, beyond just being an amazing woman to talk to, is the founding executive director of the Detroit Justice Center. She's a racial justice lawyer and a historian who has worked alongside community-based movements to end mass incarceration and build thriving and inclusive cities. On top of all of that, Amanda is a senior research scholar at the University of Michigan Law School, where she has taught law and social movements and was an attorney in the Child Advocacy Law Clinic. The work that Amanda, and her team of radical lawyers over at DJC is doing is called movement lawyering. What's that, might you ask? Oh, look, it's the definition fairy. According to Duke.edu, movement lawyering is defined as a type of litigation that follows the community lawyering model. The Webster Dictionary defines it bluntly as an alternative model of public interest advocacy focused on building the power of non-league constituencies through integrated legal and political strategy. Um, English, please. Oh, sorry. Basically, movement lawyers serve the community according to the community's needs. It's all about uplifting and empowering, serving the public interest instead of the private. Oh, thanks. Over the past few years, Amanda's vision has expanded to include many other attorneys who have dedicated their life's work to eradicating prejudicial and unjust systems of oppression like policing, the prison industrial complex, and capitalism. Amanda, this might seem like a really obvious question, but why exactly did you start the Detroit Justice Center? 
Mm, yeah. So I think, I mean, there are lots of different reasons uh, why I started DJC. I think, you know, it's a longer conversation, but Certainly. I think specifically on this institution building point, um, who I had in mind was Manning Marable, who was a uh, you know, historian, uh, writer, you know, lifelong activist. And he was my professor when I was at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had all of these projects and centers and institutes and journals going. So he, you know, was directing the Institute for Research on African-American Studies. He ran a Center for Contemporary Black History. He was running a Malcolm X uh, project. He ran the Souls Journal. Um, you know, this whole long list of projects. And what that meant in practice is that he was employing a uh, you know, small army <laughs> of, mm -hmm. of grad students and undergrads, um, which meant that we could all eat and make rent over the summer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and, you know, in New York City, which is no small thing. Right. And so um, I, it just occurred to me, you know, one, in terms of actually having us meet our basic needs, many of you know many of us as you know first generation grad students, you know, or undergrads and things, um, but then also these were vehicles mm -hmm. for you know to help bring a lot of people along, mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I mean, you know, by institution building. I think um, I want to really distinguish that from nonprofit building. I'm not saying that we need a bunch more nonprofits mm -hmm. at all, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right. hardly. Yeah. I think you know it's about you know creating um, political homes creating, you know, organizational homes that just mean that you can um, create a collective effort, because I think it's about people coming together um, and, you know, demanding and forcing change mm -hmm. um, as a collective that makes mm -hmm. things happen. And um, institutionally, in terms of DJC, what I saw was there were some brilliant lawyers and we, you know, doing this work to support mm -hmm. activists, and it was all after hours. Mm -hmm. So these are people who were um, fighting to get people released from prison, you know, in the appellate defender's office. People were in academia. They were, you know, public defenders, private practice. And then we would meet up after our nine to five <laughs> or nine to seven to, you know, really be responsive to activists in Movement for Black Lives or BYP 100 mm -hmm. who were taking to the streets and they needed, um, you know, defense. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was really how, if this is if these are the types of legal supports that our movements need and that our activists are asking for, mm -hmm. how do we create a way to shift that necessary work into the nine to five? Right, <laughs> you know? right, so right. That, oh, um, I because, love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, what 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 I see so often is you know, is people they work the nine to five, then they work they do the real movement work after hours, mm -hmm. which means okay, where where do you get to fit in being a, a best friend? or a daughter or a right. parent or someone who loves to garden. Or right, all human, when do you get to be a person? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also see, I mean, I mean, like too many people who just get completely burned through in yeah. this work. And we have too many of us dying in our 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like, how can we do work that is meaningful um, and important and also ensures that this is intergenerational work mm -hmm. <laughs> that we're doing our part and passing it along to the next generation. Right. Um, so um, that's what I, that's what I mean is is building vehicles that bring a lot of people along. Ooh, that sounds good. Tune into this amazing episode where Amanda and I will dive into the what next questions of our rumbling movement for equality in Detroit and everywhere. 
Oh, I almost forgot. One more thing. A few of the topics discussed in today's podcast may not be common knowledge. So, for the sake of keeping everybody a part of the conversation, sometimes I will pause the interview and insert a definition, example, or explanation. To signal that this is happening, listen for either this sound or this one. To begin, a quote from Derricka Purnell on abolition. In the undercomments, you know, there's this conversation between Fred and between Stefano. And what what they do is they have a response to how Ruth Wilson Gilmore describes racism and its relationship to premature death. And in their response, they say, what is the difference between this and slavery? What is, so to speak, the object of abolition? Not so much the abolition of prisons, but the abolition of a society that could have prisons, that could have slavery, that could have the wage, and therefore not abolition as the elimination of anything, but the abolition as the founding of a new society. Initially, I was gonna sort of start with defund the police and that sort of movement that really kick-started, well, it didn't kick-start this summer, it kick-started many, many years ago, obviously, you've been a part of that work for a long time. (laughs) There are lots of articles about it and lots of really interesting things, but more specifically, I wanna know, what do you think people really need to do to shift their paradigms of understanding around the necessity of police? Mm, This is great. And um, I mean, I think first of all, it comes down to, like you're saying, recognizing that these, this is longstanding work that right. people have been doing this work in their communities for uh, many years. Uh, like you're saying, this summer was a flashpoint where many more people became familiar with this idea of defunding the police right. or divest, invest. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, you know, on the back of organizing for movement for Black Lives the right. past seven years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, many, many generations of Black liberation struggle in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of the movement that has been happening, I say take cues from people who have been doing this work and who have been showing us the way. Right. Um, in Detroit, that is people like the young uh, youth organizers in 482 Forward. Right. So um, they have launched a campaign to get police-free schools in Detroit. And their demand is that the uh, Detroit school police are defunded by half mm. by next summer and the other half by the summer after that, I okay. believe. And, their idea is, um, you know, like all of these abolitionist demands, it's not just about the absence of police, it's about the presence of all the other things that will actually keep people safe. Right. Um, and so they are very clear that they, you know, want to come together with their parents, teachers, peers, community members to have a you know district-wide uh, safety planning team mm-hmm. where they're thinking holistically about um, how do we create safety in our schools? How do we train ourselves in peer-to-peer uh, de-escalation right. um, so that if something is starting to happen, people are equipped to be able to de-escalate that situation. Um, how do we get trauma-informed support and social workers in the schools? Um, beyond that, they're fighting for you know the adequate funding for uh, Detroit public schools in general. Um, to make sure that, you know, all of the infrastructure that's needed to create a safe uh, environment is there. Um, And so I would say that is one of so many campaigns where people are thinking deeply about the schools, communities that they want to live in. Right. Um, So I, I, you know, I think that the key is to join up with people who are already doing that work. Right. So, and I just think it's really important, you know, the point that you made about, like, even just the the fact that you were 
pointing out that it's really something that's going to be driven by young people. Um, and I think that ultimately sort of my realization just in the past couple of years, is like, yes, we're, 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 we're following in the footsteps of like young, you know, millennials and people who have been doing the work their entire lives. But right now, like, especially just what we, from what we saw this summer, I saw so many organizers, so many young organizers that were my age or younger. And I mean, I'm 21 and I'm thinking about young, young people who were getting out there and deciding that that's what they wanted because that's sort of like a future that they saw for themselves. So, um, yeah. And I really also like less, this whole thing is really less so about police and more so about building that safe infrastructure uh, that, that, that sort of like increasing the amount of funding for the people who create safe spaces versus like seeing this as just a police thing. Because I think that a lot of people see it as like a police thing that's what's stressing them out. Mm-hmm. There was a quote, I, I, I didn't read the whole article, so I don't even feel right quoting it, but I saw a quote <laughs> today that was saying that uh, President Obama made a statement that said um, we need to stop making such snappy like snap snappy lines like defund the police. Essentially they push people away rather than bringing people in. This was his exact quote. Borrowed from the Huffington Post. I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. I mean I personally feel like it was exactly the type of thing that got people's attention, like everybody wanted. Yep. <laughs> um, I think retweet that and say, um, you know, what was wrong with snappy slogans when it was like, yes, we can and hope change. Right. Oh. <laughs> exactly, exactly, Ex- exactly. It, 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 did, it did what it was supposed to do. But there is that flip side that's like, well, it isn't just about defunding the police. It's about defunding the police and taking that money to put it into things that we actually need. It's not like a bizarre or radical thing to ask for, in my opinion. Um, and it'd be fun. It's a very clear directive, right. you, know? I mean, you know. People and you know, have been very clear about what it means to defund schools, right. defund healthcare, right. <laughs> all these other things. But suddenly, it's it's too mystical uh, when it's about the police. Um, yeah. And you know, the fact too, it's like defund police is already a pretty uh, uh, watered down, compromised demand. I mean, you know, many of the conversations that I'm in that have been raging for a long time are about mm. abolish the police, and right? So, Right. is already is, is already an attempt to make it a little more powerful. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm so glad that you said it. I'm so, so glad that you said that. Um, I'm, I'm taking this class and it's all about mass movements and mass protests. And we're looking at it from all these different sort of areas. And um, there obviously are so many institutions that make our system function the way that it does. Um, I know that the Detroit Justice Center does a lot of work on sort of like elevating and empowering people, you know, through um, sort of economic freedom, like for biz- for business owners and things like that. But um, one issue that I, well, not an issue, but one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is um, for me, there's just been this realization that every single industry that we all sort of feed into or are a part of um, was created to support some kind of like economic profit maximizing agenda um but it was intentionally framed to be like something else like for example you know them create people the 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 prison industrial complex being created as like to be framed to look like this sort of 
place for criminals, but really it was being, but really the, the true story is that it was actually like created for free labor. Like there are other, obviously so many other institutions that were created in a way that was like you said, palatable to people, but really there was some sort of profit maximizing agenda. Um, so however, on the other hand, many organizations and, and, or, um, and activists like people who work at the Detroit Justice Center are doing really important work to help communities build more economic liberty, liberty while also sort of directly opposing that like oppressive capitalism. So I'm just curious, like, how do you justify that dichotomy? Like, how do you even begin to dismantle an institution of, um, with economic liberty that has been used to oppress while simultaneously like supporting the uplift of other capitalistic institutions? Mm-hmm. So, oh, there's so much in that question. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, a, a few different directions. I mean, one thing that I think it's uh, important to, to stress is that um, it's not just the, the profit motive or the private interest, you know, when it comes to incarceration and prison industrial complex. You know, I think um, sometimes people are, you know, focus on private prisons as if it's, you know, the fact of, you know, the fact that they're privately owned that's a problem. But, you know, I think if you look across the entire system, it's like prisons, period, are the problem. (laughs) And, you know, public prisons have all sort are the vast majority of prisons, and there's a lot of private interest involved in those. And so uh, whether or not it's directly about exploiting labor. So in many prisons, you know, people aren't being, uh, you know, used or exploited for their labor, they're actually, you know, being warehoused. Mm-hmm. And so then the profit motive comes in in other ways. Um, you know, certainly it impacts public budgets differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, private phone companies, um, you know, private vendors, right. um, private, you know, uh, healthcare operators and things are certainly making money. But, you know, I think that, you know, it's a, it's more, it's a complicated com- conversation about where exactly the, the profit motive is fitting in. Right. Um, but so I think um, the question about, you know, how do we get at the heart of dismantling capitalism? Right. Um, and I think the work at DJC that focuses most squarely on this is the work of the economic equity practice, okay. where a lot of the work that we're supporting there um, is really focused on what's called solidarity economy work. And so... Um, it's really thinking about, or you know, another word for that is cooperative economics. Like, how do we actually create new economic relationships that are not centered in the profit motive and okay. in exploitation, and okay. where people actually have the power to decide mm-hmm. um, how they want to, you know, be in exchange and um, and create resilient local economies. So, mm-hmm. some of that work has focused on building out community land trust, mm-hmm. um, where you know. We work with neighborhood organizations, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, urban farms. So we work with Oakland Avenue Urban Farm um, in Detroit, and they have been running a you know, local urban farm in the North End for many years. Mm-hmm. And have I this think dream I've been there. Of, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> dream of being able to, uh, you know, own it uh, collectively, right. govern it collectively, uh, be That's able awesome. to decide for generations to come what happens on that land mm-hmm. um, and hopefully keep the area affordable for mm-hmm. people um, for generations, regardless of how gentrification happens or how interesting the area becomes to private developers. And right. so, you know, they have all sorts of ideas for um, putting a small business, uh, you know, cooperative business corridor, mm-hmm. um, you know, on that land trust. Mm-hmm. And again, the, we have been working to uh, support worker-owned cooperatives where mm-hmm. people um, decide together, um, you know, how do they want this business to run? 
um, you know, they each have a share in the stake of it. Um, and so I think that we are most interested in what are these economic solutions that get at the heart of, you know, the problems of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so building out true alternatives. And again, taking the lead of so many of the visionary organizers in Detroit who have been doing this work. Right. Um, so I think Detroit is especially fertile ground. Um, you know, people have been doing things like time banking. Um, mm. So this is- What is time uh, banking? Yeah, yeah. So time <laughs> banking is where um, essentially you can look at a neighborhood and you know, people might be cash poor. Okay. Um, but you know, certainly they are you know rich when it comes to different skills, mm -hmm. other resources that they have, and so the idea of time banks is that you can they run you know differently in different examples, but um, you know people can pay in say an hour of uh, you know plumbing mm -hmm. repair, and they can get out an hour of childcare, or if someone ah. you know, it's the thing, right, <laughs> right. Oh. You know, familiar from a history perspective like a what, what was it called um bartering bartering exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's, yeah yeah oh that's yeah. awesome I, that's so awesome that often looks like quite elaborate spreadsheets yeah. <laughs> uh, to be able to track all of this over time and um it really is an alternative to you know traditional capitalist systems to mm -hmm. be able to say um, whether or not the you know, system sees me and my skills and my talents and my person as you know valuable or right. worth you know ten bucks an hour, right. um, my neighbors and I are going to agree that we are resource rich and that we can create our own way of bartering. Um, so, I mean, you know, Detroit has time banks. Detroit has um, local farmers who, when grocery stores left, they decided that we still need to be able to feed each other, and right. so you know, setting up urban farms setting up seed sharing cooperatives, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tool sharing cooperatives, all sorts of things. And so I think, um, you know, we've been lucky at DJC to be able to work with uh, many of these, you know, co-ops, uh, urban farming collectives and things, and just making sure from a legal standpoint that we're able to help fortify, right. um, you know, this great work that's already happening. Oh so. my gosh. So I'm so glad that you clarified that because when I asked the question, I wasn't asking to be like, how are you supporting capitalism while also trying to tear down cap? But more so just like trying to really d dive deep into sort of like what is that other side of it? Because I think that I think that a lot of us are at the point where we're like, well, you know, what? just throw it all away, throw all of throw throw everything away. Capitalism mm -hmm. is the devil. It's not going to work. But there actually is <laughs> there actually is a side of that whole process of of supporting businesses, supporting communities that, in a sense, like sort of is. Um, has d does sort of share the framework of like a of a of what am I trying to say? I think that a lot of times business businesses could go in this direction and go totally for the profit, or they could go in this direction and actually like be a business that supports their community. I think too many too many have gone this way instead of going in the opposite direction. That is totally a lot focused of the on terrible destructive examples. Yeah, yes. lots lots of examples of that. So I think that's what I was trying to get at. That like, how do we support? that but really it's not it's just we don't even realize that there are things like time banking and have never had never really heard of that or like like thinking about like how do urban farms sort of play into play into that whole economic li liberty aspect i know lately i've been in a mind space where i'm like i don't even believe 
I don't even believe in money anymore. I don't even understand what the point of it is. Like, why are we, why do we depend so much? Rather than like, why don't we trade in food? Or like, why do we invest so much money and water and resources into growing our grass? Like things like that. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I'm thinking about these things. Um, and we could spend honestly hours and hours and hours talking about that work that y'all are doing, which is phenomenal. <laughs> yes, we could, but we don't have that much time. So I'll move on to segueing from urban farming into sort of um, human and environmental ecosystem. In a piece authored by Derricka Purnell for The Atlantic titled, How I Became a Police Abolitionist, Derricka talks about how people often dismiss abolitionists for not caring about victims or safety. They tend to forget that it is the very abolitionists, the very activists for the movement that are those victims. They are the survivors of violence. And throughout the article, which is amazing, I highly encourage everybody to go and read it. It's in the Atlantic. She discusses essentially the environment that she grew up in that influenced her passion for police abolition, for prison abolition, for the issues that she stands up for as a human rights lawyer. But more specifically, for this question, I'd like for you to acknowledge the interaction between the person and the environment, and not just the environment as speaking about the earth, although that obviously plays a very important role in terms of environmental racism and environmental violence, but the interaction between the person and the environment with the movement for a prison abolition. What do you say to that? And when I say environment, I mean not only just the earth, but also how the police interacts with people, how people interact with the earth, how they interact with each other. When I th when I think about ecosystem, I think of it as a very comprehensive, all of us interacting with one another type of a thing, because everything sort of works in that sort of balance. So I'll start with that question. It's <laughs> such a big, beautiful question. I love that. I love that. <laughs> big huge scope uh, of it um i think several different things come to mind i think um one again detroit is a place where i think people see the intersections of a lot of different uh fights um you know one thing i'll say is that we are you know at the forefront of the fight for clean affordable water as a human right right um you know i think uh activists in detroit and flint um have recognized for a long time uh the um, irony and tragedy that we are on a about a quarter of the world's fresh water here in michigan mm -hmm. and yet uh <laughs> you know there's lead in the water in flint because of the decisions of emergency financial managers um you know Detroit has, has, you know, Detroit has cut off water to you know, thousands of residents. There are people living without running water in this city. Um, and so recognizing that um, these are political decisions, right. um, you know, that are um, ensuring that people do not have access to water right. or that they, you know, are, are made to pay for it. Um, right. And so um, I think that people are very rooted in the fact that, you know, these are all life and death. Uh, you know, fights. These are all fights for the right to be able to trust the water that comes out of your tap. And um, Detroit is also a city that ex has experienced such severe disinvestment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, what the what it comes back to is looking at how is it that we're in a city where people do not have running water and where the infrastructure for safe, clean, affordable transit, uh, you know, for 
you know, water, other basic resources has not been invested in. Mm -hmm. And yet what has been invested in is a massive apparatus to police, cage, and prosecute mostly black people. Right. And these are political decisions. These are economic decisions or budget decisions um, that communicate to especially young people in Detroit every single day right. that you know, those in power do not care mm-hmm. whether or not you have running water. Right. They don't care whether you um, have enough food right. or if you have access to healthy food in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But they will build a new um, $533 million jail. Yes, they will. They will invest $300 million in policing you. They yes. will invest in Project Greenlight. And <laughs> Why <Fisher> not? <laughs> all of that. Right. So, I mean, I think uh, it goes to these deep, deep, deep questions mm-hmm. um, that are at the core of abolition, I think, mm-hmm. and thinking about, okay, questioning those investments that we're choosing to make mm-hmm. um, and thinking about what are investments that would bring us into right relationship with each other right. and with the planet and to help us be good stewards of the resources that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is entirely possible, but these are political decisions being made right. to ensure that we're going in one direction instead of the other. Mm-hmm. I think if you pan out um, you know, from the, the city, there is um, you know, this realization that you know, really in Michigan, but in many other states, urban and rural areas are connected through this circuitry of incarceration. Yes. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. the, I mean, I, uh, you know, we know that, that you know, so many people are going from Detroit when they're incarcerated up to northern Michigan mm-hmm. and um, being held in prisons up there. Mm-hmm. And what has happened in many rural areas is that, you know, prisons and incarcerating mostly black people from other parts of the state um, have been sold as, you know, um, you know, we realize that we've not invested in rural agriculture. We've not invested in all these things. The, the economy has collapsed, but here's a prison town. You want right. to be prison town now. Right. You know? And so uh, there's some interesting work <laughs> happening in New York State. Uh, there's an organization called Milk Not Jails okay. that um, is really focused on you know, looking at the fact that so many prisons are in upstate New York. And what were those uh, towns before they were prison towns? Many of them uh, were home to dairy farmers, mm-hmm. um, but the state decided to, you know, um, stop uh, supporting that kind of type of agriculture mm-hmm. and instead converted these into prison towns. Mm-hmm. And so they are doing some organizing to connect oh upstate towns with New York City and saying, you know, instead of busing, you know, black, Latinx, and other people upstate so that you know, we can kind of you know, subsidize this rural economy. Instead, what we're gonna do is support people to become dairy farmers again. Yeah. And help them market their fresh milk mm-hmm. uh, to the city of New York and, and supply it to farmers markets. And then, you know, kind of like rewiring that circuitry. Right. And what they've then done is um, start to build political alliances mm-hmm. um, you know, between people who have been organizing in New York City and people organizing upstate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what's tough about that situation mm-hmm. is that it's like, in, specifically in regard to the question that I asked you too, it's this like, yeah, I don't want a prison town, but like also the you think about the, the impact of the animal agriculture um, the the entire in, in, industry of animal agriculture and how that's you know destroying a lot of like our like the, our ecosystem it, uh, in terms of from the environmental perspective. So it's like yes, please re empower rural communities and start doing things that get like getting things that we actually need that are not prisons. But it's also like dairy farming is really bad. 
like not just, not just in New York State, but everywhere. Yeah, and I think so. Then the real question, I think the the deeper question is, you know, asking people in those towns, like, if you were in a prison town, what could this town be? Right. You know, and and you know, and you know, all these things that we know that we do want in in, in an economy. So you know, like, could these be places that are hubs for renewable green energy? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's. Um, all sorts of things that, uh, I mean, I, I certainly take your point, you know, in terms of, you know, like, like, uh, it's like, uh what do we do? Like, I do want to yeah. re-empower these people, but also can we find a way to get away from dairy farming somehow? Like, what do you do? Especially when these people, like you said, have skills in that. Like that, that is, that is a very, very real issue is that a lot of these things, like a lot of the things that we call for, a lot of those, these radical calls in terms of environmental issues, like getting rid of fracking, for example, that very many jobs are in fracking or like getting rid of dairy farming. There are a lot of American dairy farmers. What happens when you say, okay, we don't want any more dairy farming. That's like a lot of people who are suddenly catapulted into poverty. So how do you solve those issues? And it's that, I mean, that's where it gets really complicated. (laughs) other i mean i think it would be worth looking more closely at milk not jails to see i mean are these like are these like industrial uh you know dairy mm-hmm. farms or are these like smaller family farms right i will um, look into it for sure yeah 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 that having you know, like a, a range of things that they are doing on that land and the, mm-hmm. the focus on milk and dairy production and uh supplying down to new york city is kind of like the hook right. <laughs> for this particular partnership but uh-huh. uh but who knows mm-hmm. uh you know what that Anything but jails. Honestly, I'm sure we can work with dairy farming. If you can get rid of the jails and have them do anything else, that's probably a lot better than putting them in prison. So, um, thank but the you. Deeper, so- I think the, the the point, you know, and why I bring some of those things up is like like these are the fundamental questions about the structure of society, the structure, mm-hmm. the relationship between urban and rural areas, um, you know, the, the political choices that we're making in terms of investing in things that create healthy communities versus ones that do not. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You're asking the huge questions and they're right on point. And these are all the things that movements are wrestling with right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's ultimately sort of the theme of this conversation is, is just sort of like, when do you like, what are things that we need to continue? How do you, how do you get the conversation going? How do you continue to wrestle with a lot of different things? There's no, there's no answer really to no full answer really to all of the things that we're talking about, you know, um, I think a big lesson that I've been learning is just like when you continue, you're not really thinking about things until you're asking questions about it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and in that space, sometimes you're asking questions and the answer to your question is another question. And it's like, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that's the way I mean, I think about it is like, you know, we certainly don't have all the answers, but we are mm-hmm. asking better questions. Yeah. That's what it's about. That is what it's about. And also, like, with those questions, you just start moving on the way. You start doing something. In in the meantime, instead of sitting around each other in an ivory tower asking all the right questions, but you're not including the community. Like you said, my favorite thing I think that you said is you go back to that community. You say, okay, what do you what do you think that this should be? What do you want to make of this space? What do you make of this land? What do you think we can do to be better for everybody that's not just, you know, not that that's not feeding off of a off of an industry that is mostly destructive to um to to the world i mean not not just dairy farming but like really at all animal agriculture and prisons and policing and brutality all all of it like what can we do to be better all together and then using what the community says to make an informed decision about what to do 
Um, yeah, and, and what they're already doing. I mean, this right. has been you know, at DJC, the way that, that we approach things with our clients is like so often it's groups that have been at this work for many years. Like right. We have a client over on the west side that it's a community organization that bought up 14 homes mm -hmm. around their community center. And they came to us because they wanted to put them into a land trust or something okay. that would keep the neighborhood affordable. Mm -hmm. And then they want to turn one of the homes into ranchery housing for men coming back from prison. Mm -hmm. And they want to put community solar panels over the entire thing. Right. And they want to start a small business corridor. And it's like, I love know, that. It's and it's the community that doing that. Yes. And they've combined a solution for reentry housing, uh, you know, climate change, neighborhood affordability all right. wrapped in this beautiful puzzle right. um, that they're asking us to support them around. And it's like, it's just, it's far more brilliant and mm -hmm. elegant than something that like folks in a think tank <laughs> right. or, or an ivory tower would come up with, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. So, um, I, you know, that's the role that I see us as lawyers at DJC playing is just like helping them translate that into reality, yep. helping to fortify the experiment that they already have going. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, but yeah, that's the wisdom of community. That, right. that, that's people saying, you know, okay, uh, we want to keep this place affordable. We want to make sure that people aren't priced out. We mm. want to welcome our beloved people back when they come back from prison. Mm. Um, you know, we and and so they were actually coming up to solution, uh, coming up with solutions to problems that they're dealing with, mm. um, as, as folks do. Awesome. In a conversation that I had with our professor Heath Pearson before. I held this interview, I brought up the point about you being an institution builder and immediately he thought of a quote from an Avery Gordon piece that says, it is so much easier to be out there than right here. And Amanda, you are right here. I just want to just take one more moment to commend the work that you've done and to say that I, as a young person, as a young intellectual, so admire the space that you take up and the space that you allow for other people to withhold knowledge and the buttons that you press to get people to see the reality of the world that we live in. As my final question for you, I'd like to ask, what do you say as a word of advice to me and to the young people who might be listening to this and to those who might feel disenfranchised and dissatisfied with the state of the world they see when they look outside? How do they get involved? How do they take the next step? Plug in uh, with, with the folks who are, who are already doing this work, already mm -hmm. leading this work. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then the next question is, I think, um, what is it that is your contribution to make? Right. Like, you know, what what brings you joy? What, what are your talents? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what gives you a sense of purpose? And I guarantee you there's a way to use that for movements. Um, so I get this question, you know, often of, you know, should I go to law school? <laughs> and I, I can ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, you out every, every other thing, <laughs> you know, that might bring you joy in life. Um, should I think there are just too many people who go to law school when they should be um, the graphic designers who are doing, you know, beautiful work, taking all the know your rights things and making them, putting them out into the world in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. um, it's the people who really want to be, you know, cooks or chefs who could be feeding the, the movement. Right. 
Um, you know, there are people who have started data for black lives because they realized that they love math and data mm-hmm. and they were upset that it was being weaponized to do, you know, do predatory lending mm-hmm. or redlining or you know, things like this. And so they're thinking, how can we use math and data to serve the movement? Right. Um, so I think that there's um, just so much room for creativity and we need all of it. Right. Movement needs all of it because we right. are talking about a complete reshaping of society right. <laughs> which oh means that we need uh, mm-hmm. cooks, healers, artists, poets, you know, everybody has a role. And so Absolutely. you certainly don't need to go to law school <laughs> um, <laughs> unless that is truly um, the contribution that you know is yours to make. Well, Amanda, I want to thank you one more time for taking some time out of your day to talk to me about the work that you're doing over at the Detroit Justice Center that the other attorneys at the Detroit Justice Center are doing and about the work that still needs to be done because just because it just got started. We still have so much further to go and I and my classmates and many of us young people are invigorated and ready for that challenge. So thank you so much for being a trailblazer. I bid you adieu and happy holidays. Good to see you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.